Okay, well, Genesis chapter 2, we are back in the Garden of Eden, and uh, we, last week, we talked about, we kind of took a little bit of a break, uh, just kind of from the normal um, themes that we've been looking at in protology, and we talked about uh, covenant theology. Did you guys find that helpful? Do you guys remember uh, that? That was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, um, was there anything that you guys maybe needed to brush up on that? Was there any confusion regarding that? I mean, we kind of covered the entire spectrum of of covenant theology kind of really quick, but um, there's a lot <clears throat> there. Obviously, it's important. Covenant theology is very important. Um, and, you know, I mean, in, in Christianity itself, I mean, I would say right now, especially in the church, you really have, you know, these two divisions of, or I would say three, uh, just for, I guess just for, you know, just for the sake of understanding where we are you have the uh the dispense uh dispensational excuse me if i don't spell that correct you have the covenant uh theology folks okay and then you also have another camp right now known as new covenant uh theology and so i just thought i'd expose you guys to kind of some of the major camps that are out there some of the major theological systems of thought that people use in order to interpret the Word of God. Um, and, you know, for me, I would say that when I hear everybody out, I would say there's there's definitely some truth in, in everybody's position. I mean, you know, I respect people from all of these camps, um, uh, and uh, I think a lot of them have a lot of valid things to say. I'm certainly, a, you know, I think dispensational scholars today, um, and I would say with dispensationalism, of course, you're talking about a development of a theology that started back in the 1800s, and of course they wouldn't agree with that. They would say it began back in the early church, right after the apostolic age, and of course they would say well, it's the Bible. I mean, it's nothing less than the Bible. But really what we have today is is more of what's known as kind of a, I guess, of a progressive dispensationalism. People have kind of shed some of the hardcore dispensational theology of the founders of the of the real movement, which would be people like uh, John Darby, would be people like uh, Schofield, who really began the whole movement of what came to be known as dispensationalism, which basically taught that in the Bible there are different dispensations of times and that God works in specific ways during those times. But the problem is, is that they see those almost as a as a, uh, a, a a neatly compartmentalized time period where whatever happened in that period of, let's say, the they have a dispensation of innocence in the garden. And what was going on in the garden really has nothing to do with what happened later in a dispensation, let's say, like dealing with the covenant, uh, Mosaic covenant. They would say there's really no connection, no overlap between the two. So in one sense, dispensational theologians would see less of a continuity in the Bible and covenant theologians would see more of a continuity in the Bible. Um, and, of course, I'm more of a covenant theology kind of guy. Uh, new covenant theology is kind of a rare breed of covenant theology that just kind of came on the scene. I would say, oh, I don't know, maybe in the last maybe 20 years or so, that I, maybe 20, 30 years, uh, these kind of remnants of new covenant theology, which basically is is kind of t- trying to stress the primacy of the new covenant and of Jesus and the apostles. And what they would say is that basically today, the law of God, which is, you know, traditionally taught under covenant theology as having some sort of good moral influence in our life today, that it is still useful for our own day 
as a as a guide for for understanding morality and and what is pleasing in God's sight and 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 that they would say that there's a less continuity between the law of God uh, from uh, you know in 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 the Old Testament and today and certainly we would agree with that but let me give you an example of what new covenant theology would say they would say things like in evangelism you don't use the 10 commandments all you do is you point to Jesus say so they would say you know Jesus is the is the essence of the 10 commandments he is the moral uh, example of the Ten Commandments. He is the embodiment of the moral law of God. Why would you go back to the to the to the words written on stone when you have the the incarnate Word in front of you? So they would say, don't point to the Ten Commandments. Point to Jesus, uh, who is, <clears throat> in terms of a standard of morality, there could be no higher standard of morality than Jesus. Well, it sounds good, right? <laughs> but the problem is, is that in the New Testament, you have, com- you have, uh, passages that seem to suggest we need to be using the law of God in evangelism. Uh, for example, 1st Timothy chapter 1, right? It talks about, what is it, verse 7, I think, and following, it talks about the law is good as long as you use it lawfully, knowing that the law is not for righteous man, for the, un- but it's for the ungodly, for a sinner, for a, you know, for an adulterer, for a fornicator, for, you know, et cetera, for kidnappers and murderers, right? And so the law is still, in uh, Paul's view, useful and good today. So New Covenant theology, I think, is kind of an overreach. And then covenant theology, we talked about that last time we got together. So if you really want to dive a little bit deeper on that, pick up the podcaster or the, uh, the audio and, and, and please listen to that because that really is very essential to the way I interpret this, the scriptures and the way that we do here at our church. Yes, yes, ma'am. I to an E. Oh, E to an I. Oh, yeah, gee. Oh, wait, wait, an I, an I, an I. You guys don't like my P? Where's Vanna White? Vanna White's gonna be coming out in a second. Jeez, tough crowd today, man. Okay, all right. So let's go back to talking about Eden, the Garden of Eden. Okay, remember, remember. We have been looking at biblical theology in a very, very, very easy way in the sense of we looked at uh, biblical theology in terms of, um, you know, what it is. So what is biblical theology? And then we talked about how do you do it, how to do, right, biblical theology. And here we talked about hermeneutics, right, uh, that's really what we developed. And everything is on audio. If you feel like you need to go back and refresh, I don't know what you said about her, the hermeneutics of biblical theology. I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, go back to the earlier sessions where we talked, where we talk about the hermeneutics of biblical theology. And we talked about, uh, probably more important than anything, we talked about a redemptive, what? Historical. Very good. Redemptive historical approach to scripture. In addition to what? What is another aspect of hermeneutics that is good for us? The grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible, right? So we have grammar, right? Uh, and we have the historical aspect of that. Somebody said literal. 
Remember, I opted to drop the word literal out of our hermeneutics because scripture is a composition of many, many genres, right? It's not just uh, literal didactic literature. It is also um, poetic, apocalyptic, parabolic, metaphorical. There is, uh, I mean, you read the song Solomon. A lot of it is very uh, allegorical type language. Uh, the Psalms, you know, the Psalms are... Uh, you know, very, very important. They kind of take on a, a kind of a character all themselves. You're dealing with the Psalms. You're dealing with a lot of Hebraisms, which means there's a real Jewish way of interpreting the Psalms. That's very important. You deal with parallelism, uh, antithetical, synonymous, all kinds of parallel devices uh, in the Psalms. So, so really, grammatical, historical. That's right. So we exegete the text of Scripture. We try to decipher the grammar, but when People say grammatical historical, the historical part of it is not the same as redemptive historical. Historical in the grammatical historical camp, what they're talking about is what's known as background information. Remember, we talked about that. And there was three A's. Remember that? There is the author, right? There is the audience, uh, right? And then there is the, what I call... The argument, okay, and that really kind of makes up the the historical aspect of a grammatical historical interpretation of the Bible. Who's writing the book? What is the situation they're writing from? Is Paul in prison? Is he in Rome? Is he in Corinth? Where is he? Who is he writing to? What are they going through? What's happening in Colossae? Why is he talking about angel worship? What does that have to do with anything? And then the argument. What's the overall thrust of the argument behind any passage of Scripture or letter of Scripture, what have you? What is the argument of Romans? Why was Romans written? You see what I'm saying? These are historical background situation, what the theologians call the Zitzim Leben. In other words, the circumstance in which that book was written. Okay, uh, But redemptive historical uh, interpretation, when we talk about history with the redemptive historical approach, we're talking about the development of biblical history. So we're talking about how does the Bible unfold over time in the Bible? And what does that have to do with God's saving purposes? You see what I'm saying? And so that's really where we're at. And then after we did what is it, how do we do it, then... Um, then we began looking at sections in biblical theology. Okay, so we are dealing with protology, right? It's like a conference coming coming to a church near you very soon, right? Um, and so we have been dealing with the days of creation. We talked about that. Remember, we talked about the days of creation are ultimately Christological. They are foundational for the entire theology of the Bible. Um, uh, I made up a phrase to kind of help us with that. The days of creation were not written for Darwin. They were written for Jesus, right? Um, the uh, Moses didn't write Genesis 1, in order to refute Darwin, <laughs> he wrote it to magnify and to lead us to Christ. And uh, and that's certainly how the, the authors of the Bible take it. All you have to do is compare John chapter 1 with Genesis chapter 1, and you'll see the parallels. Light and darkness overcoming the chaos uh, in the beginning, right, was the word. And all of this rhetoric, nothing came into being without him, right, all of this creation language paralleling the language of Genesis 1, especially if you look at it in the, in the Greek Septuagint. Everybody know where the Greek Septuagint is? 
What is the Greek Septuagint, Robert? Correct. The Greek, translating the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. That's very important because when you study the New Testament, you will find that the New Testament authors are quoting the Greek Septuagint probably more than the Hebrew. Think about that. Right? Questions or anything before we get back into this? Okay. Um, let me read to you a quote from um, Desmond Alexander regarding the Garden of Eden. Listen to this. The place that will become the prime habitat for the human couple, that's Adam and Eve, is a garden planted by the Lord God. This word, planted, is a rich theological term used to describe something that God produces to give life to, to nourish, and to nourish its surroundings. The garden brims with life, with fruit trees, with with a tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and a river whose head waters flow out of Eden, dividing into four branches and providing water to the rest of the world. It's very interesting why. Because that becomes the paradigm, if you would. Um, if you look at, for example, let me give you some verses on this. So let me get rid of this. <clears throat> get rid of this here. And let me say that Genesis... This is the way kind of biblical theology works. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, and really going all the way to chapter 2, let's say we can go all the way to verse 16 after God commissions man there in the garden, right? Um, What what happens is that this becomes really, just to stick with the, at least with one aspect of it. If you look at these other texts like Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 1 through 13, Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. What you have is a conceptual link going back to Genesis, the division of the river, breaking up into parts, watering the rest of, of creation, at least in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Now we're talking about the new creation, right? So what was Genesis 2 talking about, or what was what was God doing by giving us Genesis, uh, the original creation, and describing it in the way that he did? Remember, you guys, Genesis 1 through 3 is a small portion of the Bible, correct? Three little chapters, right? Why does God include what he includes? Why doesn't he give us a full explanation of how in the world dinosaurs and man live together? (laughs) Wouldn't you like to know that? Right? I I mean, I was fascinated by stuff like that. I read read, uh, Henry Morris's book, The Genesis uh, Flood. Because I was so interested in dinosaurs. This is just, you know, skeptics ask you about that all the time. How, you know, dinosaurs, how did they exist? And I thought, why didn't God spend at least a chapter talking about dinosaurs and explaining this for us, right? Why does, what, what do I care that a river splits up and one is Pishon and one is, you know, the, 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 the Euphrates and the Tigris? Like, what does that matter? (laughs) It's be, yeah, it's because if you remember, Protology leads to what? It leads to the eschaton, to eschatology. What does the word protology mean? The study of the first things. What does eschatology mean? The study of the last things. So what you have in the Bible and what biblical theology is trying to show us is that you have, in a sense, a set of, I guess, uh, don't, don't make fun of my books here, right? But you have a set of bookends, right? One is Genesis, the other one is Revelation. 
and they kind of encapsulate the whole Bible, all the books of the Bible, and beginning to end, <laughs> Alpha, Omega, right? The Bible gives us two bookends, protology and eschatology, and is it any wonder that Revelation 21 and 22 often mirrors what you find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Remarkable. And so my question is, did God mean to do it this way? Did God mean to do it this way? Well, of course he did. Of course he did. So Ezekiel 28 and other places. Actually, that's wrong. I'm sorry. Did you guys write that down? I got the wrong one. It's actually 47. I knew that sounded funny. Sorry. Ezekiel 47. What's what's going on in Ezekiel 47? Does anybody know? What's going on in Ezekiel 40? to 48. Anybody know? It's the building of the end time temple. It is a vision that God has given Ezekiel of what he would do and the way that he would rebuild and what would be taking place during the time of the rebuilding of God's temple. Now, there is a huge debate which exceeds the parameters of this class, but whether or not what Ezekiel is envisioning is an actual architectural structure. Or is he envisioning something more metaphorical, typological, symbolical? Um, that's kind of a, that's kind of what's being, uh, debated today is, is Ezekiel actually talking about an actual architectural temple? Or, as many contend, and I'm kind of inclined to agree with them, is it a description of the end time temple, which is really a description of the new heavens and the new earth as represented by Revelation 21 and 22? Right? Uh, that's that's kind of the big debate, but you have these parallels leading down with this. So, is it, this kind of reminds us that when we're talking about Eden, remember we've connected this before, but we're we're saying that Eden now becomes in a sense a temple or sanctuary in the same way that the whole world has been described in temple imagery. Remember we left off on the Sabbath. Do you guys remember what I said about the imagery of the Sabbath and what it meant for God to rest? What did that what did that mean? God rested. You remember that, Russell? Excellent. Excellent because we don't typically think of it that way, right? We think of rest as if God is enjoying what he's done, right? And we defend the anthropomorphic language of God resting because skeptics and atheists and know-it-alls, they want to attack us and say, well, see, if God is God, why does he need to rest, right? Muslims love that argument, right? If God is God, why does he need to be refreshed, right? And so we usually go down that track. But theologically, so we're talking about biblical theology, the idea of God resting, like Russell says, is a position of authority, right? Amazing. So you have, and I can't remember the psalm. Let me, maybe, maybe I can dig it up. There's a psalm. Do you remember that, Russell? <laughs> now I need you, buddy. <laughs> there, there's a, there's a psalm that actually explicitly will draw this out. Um, if I can find it, I'll be really. Yeah, there it is. Psalm 132 verses 7 and 8. Remember, we thought it really strange that the psalmist would say, Arise, Lord. So what do you think in your mind? The psalmist is saying, Arise, right? And what do you think is coming after that? (laughs) 
right? Something like arise and, you know, do battle or something, right? But he says, arise to your resting place. What is so triumphant about God assuming his resting place? Right? Because as Russell pointed out, and as many have pointed out, for, uh, for God to rest is the imagery of him sit, sitting on his throne with absolute sovereignty and control and absolute dominion over his enemies. And so the psalmist is saying, arise, O Lord, to your resting place. Basically, basically he's calling for the people of God, because this psalm is about rousing the people to worship, right? He's he's telling people, worship that our God is in control. He sits on his throne. He has vanquished his enemies, and he rules the universe uh, in total perfect sovereignty. Uh, really beautiful, right? I mean, absolutely beautiful imagery. And he says, arise to your resting place, you and the, watch this, and the ark of your strength. Amazing. Uh, Psalm 132, verses 7 and 8. The ark, mind you, what is the ark of the covenant? The ark of the covenant is God's footstool. What does that mean? It is his throne, right? It is the symbol of his throne room. Uh, and that's what you have. Uh, and that's why it's in the Holy of Holies, right? When you go into the tabernacle, the ark is in the Holy of Holies because that is where the immediate, the, the, the ultimate presence of God is found in all of its glory, all of its beauty, right? All of that. Now, <clears throat> We looked at the days of creation and that reminded us that what God was doing, in fact, was he was constructing the world as a cosmic temple. And that is indicative, once again, of what the end time world will be. Right? The end time world will be uh, constructed in much the same way, only it will be much better. Uh, it will be a completely re- renewed or new earth. Uh, that's a big debate, by the way. Um, new heavens and a new earth. Does that mean God is going to literally annihilate the present reality, the present universe, and start from scratch? Or is God simply going to renew the present universe? Right? What do you guys think? Renew it? Anybody think he's starting from scratch? Right? I mean, I, that, that was my position for, for the longest time. Is I... I, I think, and, and really, I'm not really overly dogmatic on this point. I mean, um, I always thought about it that way. The elements are going to melt with a fervent heat, right? I thought, well, what's left? <laughs> you know, if he's going to melt the elements with fervent heat, I mean, the, all the material stuff is certainly gone, right? So I always thought of it as, yeah, God literally starting from scratch all over again. But a really good case can be made for a renewed earth. In other words, that the new heavens and the new earth will have a correspondence with this heaven and this earth. And the theologians point to the example of salvation. How salvation is not, is not that there's no longer any correspondence with who you are, right? As a human being, like you're still who you are. The identity, there's still a correspondence with your identity, but you have been renewed. You have been changed, but it's still you, right? Uh, uh, it's just all the sinful, wicked, you know, carnal elements are burned away by God's sanctifying power. Yes, ma'am. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> right. It's like an acorn, right? I mean, the seed, that's the analogy he gives in First Corinthians chapter 15, right? He says it's the seed goes into the ground, right? I mean, and there's different, 
different kinds of flesh and different kinds of seeds, right? Um, so there is a corn. I mean, a little tiny little acorn turns into a huge giant tree. You still say, yeah, that tree is came from that acorn, right? It's still that acorn in a sense, but it just became something much greater. Um, okay, let me let me uh, bring you into some of the features of Eden that remind us of the temple. Uh, number one, number one. In Eden, uh, go with me to Genesis chapter 3 now, uh, you see in verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God walk, um, uh, uh, among the trees of the garden. Um, this concept of God walking back and forth, can you think of any other place in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament maybe, where it literally speaks about God walking. Exodus? Exodus? Find it for me. I don't know. You say Exodus, it's like... Yeah, yeah, where it actually says he's walking with them in their midst, right? So turn to like a, like a passage like Leviticus, Leviticus 26, because what... What theologians are arguing for is that the language of walking in the midst of the garden is actually ultimately reminiscent of temple imagery, of sanctuary imagery of God walking in the midst of his tabernacle and that it really has to do with God's sanctuary presence. Leviticus 26, uh, verse, for example, verse 16. Uh, is that right? Their presence describes his 26, 2612. I'm sorry. 2612. This is what it says. It says, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Wow. I wasn't even thinking about that, but, but, um, uh, you should know if you've been in this class for any length of time that there's two major things going on there. Number one, yes, here we are again in the context of the life of Israel in the context of the tabernacle, God walking in the midst of them. And and then he uses that formula, remember? I will be your God and you shall be my people. <laughs> what is that about, Jonathan? Right. Right. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I've made a big deal of that phrase only because it's such a powerful covenantal phrase, right? I will be your God, you will be my people. It's what starts everything off, right? I would say in Genesis chapter, you know, one, two, three, you have, you have the, uh, the picture of it given to us with Adam and Eve, and then you have the actual, the actual vocabulary used, um, in, in Abraham with the Abrahamic covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people, right? That language of the covenant, which reaches its climax in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, for example. It's there, right? Uh, that's one. Another one is Deuteronomy 23. You got that? You want to read that, Robert? Yeah. Uh, Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. And he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. That's right. And there's other passages, Ezekiel uh, 2314. There's also Second Samuel 7, uh, verses 6 through 7, Ezekiel 28, verse 14. All of this language of God walking in the midst 
of his people in connection with tabernacle worship. Um, he wa- Enoch walked with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, also, also the language of the sanctuary is found, if you look uh, with me back to Genesis, in the language that is used for uh, for Adam and Eve, their duties. Remember, I talked about this that they had they're being described in priestly terminology, right? So Genesis chapter two, beginning in verse uh, fifteen. Listen to what it says. It says, Then the Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, two Hebrew words are used right there, Adan and Shamar. These two words are used again and in conjunction with each other in Numbers chapter 3. Let's turn there really quick. Numbers chapter uh, 3. Numbers chapter 3, verse 7, okay? Uh, let me see if I can scoot down here. Numbers chapter 3, verse 7. You have this language being used of the priests in the context of the sanctuary. That their duties were to keep and to cultivate the tabernacle. Which is very interesting, is it not? Um, because it's not used of other other things in other contexts, in other ways. Uh, especially when they're used together. Uh, Avad and Shamar. It says, they shall perform the duties to, uh, for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service. That's the word, avad, the same word that's used back in Genesis, of the tabernacle. And they shall also keep all of the furnishings, the shamar, keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with all the duties of the sons of Israel to do the avad, the service of the tabernacle. And so imagine that you are an Israelite. You just came out of ex, out of the ex, you know, you just went through the whole exodus. You just came out of Egypt and, 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 and Moses receives the law and he is recounting the law to the people and you're reading Genesis for the first time and you hear him say that Adam and Eve were in a sense to, to avad and to shamar the, the, the garden of God. And then you hear now in numbers that the priests are to avad and to shamar the tabernacle. Uh, do you think you'd make the connection? Uh, I think so. I think the cumulative evidence for this is very strong too. You find it in other places. Numbers chapter 8, verse 20, 26, same thing. Numbers 18, verse 5 through 6, same thing. They will shamar all of the ab- obligations of the sanctuary. Uh, remarkable. So let me go back to some more of the characteristics of Eden in terms of temple language. Also, you have the presence in chapter 3 of Genesis of the cherubim, right? The presence of the cherubim in chapter 3. Now, what is the cherubim doing in chapter 3 of Genesis? Verse 22, beginning there. What, what, is, he, what is he doing? Right? Um, let's see here. Verse 24. So he drove the men out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he, sa- he stationed the cherubim, and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So what happens is that the cherubim become a symbol of protecting uh, the garden, 
right? Protecting, in a sense, the sanctuary of God. And so what happens is that in the temple, in the tabernacle, the cherubim are decorating the, the temple, decorating the sanctuary. They're in the curtains. They're on the Ark of the Covenant, right? The cherubim are memorialized in the temple as the guardians of God's sanctuary. Um, things like that. Also, it is very possible, now let me just uh, take you back to Genesis 2.9, right? The ref- at least knowing the reference there to the tree of life. Um, there's a big debate when we did uh, the Emmaus conference for um, Exodus. One of the debates that, because I was studying um, some of the furnishings of the, of, the, of the temple, and I talked about the lampstand. What did the lampstand symbolize? What does the lampstand symbolize in the temple? When you go into the Holy of Holies or when you go into the holy place, there will be a lampstand there. What does it symbolize? Uh, there's a lot of debate over this, actually. I came to find out that there's actually quite a su- substantial debate, and most of the most respected Old Testament scholars really don't take a dogmatic position on it. What does it symbolize? What do you think it symbolizes? Twelve tribes? Uh, the presence of God. What 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 was the lampstand? What what is what is what is it signifying? Like what does it represent? What object does it describe? Right. What is the lampstand uh, look like? Right. It's uh, right. That's right. Right. And it has these various. It has one center shaft. Right. And it goes down here. What's at the tip of the shafts of the lampstand? Do you know? Leaves. leaves. That's right. That's right. There's leaves. And what does that remind you of then? Oh, right? That staff is putting out again. Of, uh, Joshua's staff. Wasn't it Daniel threw out leaves? Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe it has a connection to the staff that budded. Right? But most Old Testament scholars would say that this is reminiscent of the tree of life. Because it's a tree that's living, right? But what is at the very tip of these leaves, these buds, fire, right? So it's simultaneously a tree that is on fire. It's growing. It's on fire, right? And it lights the way. Well, when's the last time the Israelites heard of a tree on fire? So Old Testament scholars say, no, no, no. The lampstand is actually symbolic of the of the burning bush that Moses encountered, that's exactly what they would have remembered. It is a tree on fire that is not consumed, right? Because it burns day and night. They never let the, the light go out, right? And so they say, no, 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 it's it's a living tree because it's budding, so it's obviously going back to the tree of life. <laughs> so they go back and forth in the imagery, and no one knows for certain. It's amazing. No one knows for certain what the exact imagery of this is representing, um, and so for me, I'd be almost like, well, why choose? It is representing the tree of life. It is representing the burning bush, right? And uh, now it is memorialized in the sanctuary of God. If this is connected to the tree of life, you have a very, very strong now. I think you have a very strong connection to the Garden of Eden being a sanctuary, right? Because of the imagery uh, just amazing the way that God thought it all up. 
Um, again, when you think about even the decorations of the tabernacle of the sanctuary, the wood carvings in the temple are are described in paradisical language, right? There are vineyards, there's fruit, there are vine trees, there, there are pomegranates, there are trees. Uh, some people describe the temple as an arboreal palace because there are so many temples, or excuse me, there are so many trees that are painted and, and that are furnished into the temple. You look everywhere, trees, 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 trees. And so what they're saying is that the temple is like an arboreal palace or an arboreal temple of God. Well, the first time we found ourselves in an arboreal temple, I would say, is in the Garden of Eden, when you are surrounded by trees, right? Uh, that kind of language. Trees are very important in uh, the Old Testament. You remember that it was under a tree where, uh, and this is, this is also going back to the Garden of Eden, but it's under a tree that the kings would sit to render judgment. Solomon, remember when he, is it time to cut the baby, right? He's, he's there and he's, he's rendering judgments for Israel. He's doing that under a tree. And so what they say is that, is that really what happens is that the tree of knowledge of good and evil is sort of that early uh, depiction that, that Adam and Eve, God's king priests, if you would, his kingdom of priests, they were to render judgment at the knowledge of tree of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil who were they who were they to judge at the knowledge of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil who were they to pass judgment on satan the serpent right when the serpent came in to tempt eve she should have cast judgment on him but she failed in her kingly duties right um and what do you have in the history of Israel? You have a repetition of these Adamic situations where Israel time and again fails, just like Adam and Eve failed. They failed to execute justice over and over. And it's not until you arrive at the final judgment tree that true justice is accomplished through Jesus Christ. Uh, there are so many of these uh, of these links in Ezekiel chapter 40. We are told that Eden was on a mountain, or it is described as being a mountain of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord is also described in terms of the temple. The temple was built on the mountain, just like Eden is said in Ezekiel 40 to be on a mountain. Uh, all of these different ideas. Any questions, comments, or statements that you may want to make? Yes, sir. <clears throat> well, I think that what that means is that at that time, Adam and Eve, you know, uh, I think it's trying to show what they lost. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, what is it? Oh, they weren't in Texas, especially not in August. Yeah, again, I just think it's indicative of two things. Number one, that this was life in the garden, right? That, that they had God's presence among them and that that is what they lost. Um, well, mainly the cool of the day part. Oh, in the cool of the day? Yeah. You know, actually, what's, what's yeah, interesting yeah. about that is something totally different. If you look at those words in Hebrew, 
it talks about a, 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 almost like a stormy wind. Mm. Um, mm, yeah, so, that's I, true. I don't know if you've heard about this. That's right. But there's a good, what, what a lot of people make an argument for the cool of the day is God was walking. Um, you know how he came in a storm, you know, to uh, Elijah. <clears throat> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Even in this place, what they're saying is that um, God was in because it's after because he quotes this verse after they had fallen in, after they had fallen into sin, and so God was walking in almost in a judgment wind or storm. It's kind of like hmm. the, the interesting. Um, the that you get from that. Yes, it could it could be reminiscent of the glory cloud, and I think that's I think that's what uh, Meredith Klein says. Is that that is you know accompanying God's glory, you know? Um, but that's that's something you can look into. I, I'll tell you this much: it'll probably have to do with the sanctuary. <laughs> it'll probably have to do with the temple. Um, okay, so <clears throat> you can see. I mean, there are so many. I mean, you can. It never stops. It never ends. In Revelation 21, you have a description of the precious stones with which the new heavens and the new earth will be built. Uh, those precious stones find their origin back in Genesis chapter 2, where stones are mentioned in the garden, uh, which becomes sort of the catalyst for what we will have in the end. Um, okay, let me just do one more thing here. All right, so typologically, turn with me to, really quickly, just to show you this, um, because when we're looking at the Garden of Eden, ultimately, and I always want to always want to try to drive it home to Christ, right? So look with me in Genesis 2, beginning of verse 7, right? We made, a, we made this case that Adam and Eve are God's covenant creatures. They are in covenant with God. They are in the sanctuary of God. They are kings and priests to God. <clears throat> but we know that Adam is also, more than that, he is the representative of mankind, right? Uh, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, one thing we know about this passage now, if you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that what we are supposed to understand about that passage, right? And this is what's so, you think about what, um, you think about all the statements in the New Testament that talk about the prophets, that they long to see what we see. They long to know what we know. It's a perfect example right here. <clears throat> the prophets would have loved to know that when God created man and he breathed into him the breath of life, that that was simply a picture that was indicative of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate man, right? The ultimate God-man, right? And his, and his ability not just to possess life, but to be the giver of life, right? Uh, so here's, this is what they would call, this is what they would call typology by contrast, right? It's a tip, it's a typological contrast that's going on here, right? Whereas Adam received life, Jesus gives life, right? And it's used in this very language. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42. This is tremendous, and we don't have the time to develop all of this here, so I'll just read it to us. But it says this, so also is the resurrection from the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. What's going to happen in this exposition? is that you're actually going to have Paul talking about how the physical body 
and then that tied to Adam and the fact that he is a he is a living being, right, actually becomes a transfer in realms by the time you get to Christ. Watch very closely. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So this is what he's really getting at here. The contrast between the natural and the spiritual. Watch this. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Talking about the resurrection body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, watch this, Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, became a living soul. You see that? The last Adam, isn't that glorious, became a life-giving spirit. Now, of course, what we think right off the bat is, how is it possible that Jesus is being called a spirit? <laughs> right? So immediately we began to go down the path of Trinitarian controversy. I would say the same thing. Just keep your finger really quick there as I'm doing this at the worst possible time because I have no time to do this. I'm, I, I would say the same thing applies to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 17 to 18. Now, See me afterwards for this if you need to, but I think what's going on here is that Jesus is identified here as the Spirit, uh, but not maybe in the way you think. Verse 17, now the Lord, who's that? In the context, the closest antecedent is Jesus Christ, and all the technical commentaries will point this out. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so it's... Uh, the way that I've heard it described is one way of saying that Jesus is the ultimate dispenser of the Spirit. He is so closely one with the Spirit that he is even called the Spirit, uh, is the way that I have heard it. So I think you have the same thing being uh, said here, 1 Corinthians 15.45. The last Adam became a life-giving Spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. You see what I was talking about in in terms of realm transfer? We have gone from the natural as belonging to what realm? Earth, right? The natural man belongs to what realm? Earth. He is earthly. But it says, but the second man is what? From heaven. You see that? And so what is he saying? He's saying that when we adopt a resurrection body, there is actually a transfer of realm. We leave this earth and we go into the heavenly realms, right? As is the earthly, so are also the, so, so are those who are of earth or earthy. I don't like the word earthy. Um, NASB. I don't know. What does the ESV say? Earthly? Does anybody have that? Verse 48. Okay, so they use the word the dust. That's better, right? R.C. Sproul, dust the glory. Anyway. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. So in other words, because the resurrection body bears the nature of the heavenly realms, so too those who have the resurrection body will be from the heavenly realm. We will belong to, we will no longer belong to this present earth. Why? Because we no longer have a natural body. 
we will have a supernatural spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly thing, I would say, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, the earthly realm, we will also bear the image of the heavenly realm. Uh, that's what I would say. Any questions or last comments on that? Anything? I know that was kind of a wild card there at the end, First Corinthians 15. I mean, that's a big one. You know, maybe we will have to back up and go slow and, you know, drill down a little bit deeper on that, right? No, no questions, comments, statements? No? Please, I hate being the only one talking, but... Okay, let's go to worship.